Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, the man who broke the music business, the major downsides to the container culture, and yes, they really are trying to sell you security snake oil. Plus, it's a great big batch of your questions, our answers, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 212 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on April 23rd, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, why that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You've got to go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher in studio. Mr. Alan Jude. <laughs> hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris. Everybody. Thanks for watching. <laughs> I feel so weird because you're right next to me. Yeah. Normally, right. you're across. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello there, Alan. Hello. Normally, you're like, uh, what, how many miles apart? Like, I don't know, like 3,000 miles yeah. or something. <laughs> Big number. It's pretty fun. Uh, and normally, uh, we would uh, we would be doing this show remotely, but today, we're recording it because Alan's in down for Linux Fest Northwest. And it's like, well, if I'm here, let's uh, knock this stuff out of the park. And this is officially our first episode since our fourth anniversary. Yes. Which is super cool. Uh, the text, it's and I'm, ridiculous I'm, that we have done four years without missing a single episode ever. Boom. I just want to take a second here. I don't even – I can't even think of mainstream television because they take nope. season breaks. Yeah, and they have all kinds and like, of things. And even like the nightly news takes breaks from time to time. Yep. Four years. Four years in a row. And not to pat our own back, but it's just something to be pretty proud of. Well, it's, it's crazy. If you had asked me in the beginning if I could have managed to <laughs> set aside yeah. most of an entire day every day for four years. <laughs> People have no idea. And the then somebody had the bright idea of making me do it twice a week. And it was like, ah. I think that somebody was you, actually. No, actually, it was TJ. But, uh, <laughs> well, for a while, I was doing it with you on Sundays. Yes, and then yes, I was like, this yes. is too much. I can't yes. do this. And then I forgot that I had said that and agreed yeah. to do it all over. <laughs> Again. You forget. You stop for a little while. You forget how <coughs> how much commitment it takes, and yeah. you accidentally do it again. And then, yeah. So and then uh, you're doing it five days a week or something. It's fun because while we have four years of history, there are some stories that are sentimental to sent that really they're sort of key to how things are today. And yep. and and we kind of forget sometimes the details of some of the most major tech events that have happened. And so it sort of seems fitting that here we are, our first episode after our fourth anniversary. We're going to look back at the man who truly broke the music business. Yeah. Uh, so this is basically going back to the time of the internet when MP3 was invented. The, the codec came out. And now if you wanted to upload a music CD – uh, you could compress it and it'd be a couple megabytes you know, instead of 700 megabytes. Do you know how I got my first MP3s? My local FM radio station was just posting the songs they played on their radio station up as MP3s for you to download because they didn't understand there was anything wrong with it. So the first couple of MP3s I got was like, a, uh, um, you know, downloaded just from a radio ra- ra- from the local radio station because they were just, hey, here's the music we're playing. Have yeah. a download. And it was like it was like Blink and other other bands. Huh, and cool. Yeah. Uh, my first MP3, I tried to play my 486, and it didn't work because the <laughs> CPU wasn't fast enough. Yes. <laughs> and after that, I got into it a little bit more. Uh, and 
Right. I had used WAV files before, but they're uncompressed and they were right. like huge and it didn't really get into it much. Of it. When I think of the man, quote unquote, that broke the music industry, I think of some elite pirate who uh, who got thousands of CDs and ripped them to MP3s and uploaded them to Usenet or torrent sites. I think of a sophisticated hacker who was aware of trends before everybody else was. I think of somebody who was like the pioneer of the Napster network. Uh, but that's not what happened at all, is it? Uh, there, there were... Yeah, there were basically multiple people that had a little bit of element of each of those different things. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this story over at The New Yorker talks about uh, the inside story of, of one of the major groups uh, that started pirating MP3s. And it starts uh, with the, the one guy there, uh, Del Glover, uh, who worked at the CD pressing plant. And so basically, you know, the, the music master would come in usually like literally in a limo in a locked briefcase. <laughs> And it would go up into the plant and they would uh, set it up and then start print pressing out the CDs that you would buy. Uh, and then his job was he was on the feeder side of the shrink wrap machine. So he would make sure the CDs go in and then in the case and <laughs> then they would go through and get shrink wrap. And right. the guy on the other side would put them in a box. Right. And as they were getting shrink wrapped, they were being counted to make sure that none would go missing. Uh, oh. Yep. And then uh, Those don't fit happened. your ears, do they? They're, no. No. I'm, I'm used to my ones that wrap over my ears have, and hold on. Do you on. have small ear holes or really big ear holes? Uh, bigish. I don't know. Yeah, I think they're bigish. Yeah. I, I could grab another. You it got big matter. holes. Though. Anyway, all right. <clears throat> uh, so the, uh, this guy was in the unique position of everybody at the plant to be able to steal the CDs without them being noticed that they were gone. Right. As soon as everybody after him, the CDs were counted. <laughs> yeah. And if one goes missing, they were looking for it. Right. Whereas his job involves actually he would have some of the rejects and stuff and would actually be in charge of throwing them away. So they're Definitely, you know, nobody notices one that we're supposed to throw away didn't go thrown away or whatever. Uh, and so, but this guy's smart. He didn't do the smuggling of the disc out of the plant himself. Uh, he had other people do it and then would pay them ah, and buy the CDs. So it uh, wasn't as easily to track him, was it? Right. Uh, and so the biggest advantage this guy had over the regular pirates and so on was that he would get the music like a month before it would go to the store. Because mm. they're pressing them and getting well ready, and then a premium the product, as it were. Yeah, so he would have the latest rap CDs or whatever. Well, originally the music he had wasn't stuff that people were really interested in, uh, not people on the internet. Because at the time, <laughs> back, back then, uh, the people on the internet were not people that would be interested in. I think the examples were like Sheryl Crow and Rod Stewart and stuff right. like that. People on the internet were yeah. maybe more uh, uh, eclectic. But, uh, a couple of years later, uh, Universal bought that plant. And then all of a sudden, they had all the rap music, which is what a bunch of people wanted, right? They had like Eminem and oh. Jay-Z and, oh, okay. and Dr. Dre okay. and that okay. kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, and so this guy's having this stuff like a month early. And uh, he's uh, – so what would happen is he would uh, get somebody to smuggle it out, and then he would buy that CD from them, rip it, turn it into an MP3, and upload it. And then the guy that ran the pirate group – was the guy that kept track of which music's coming out, who's going to want it, and so on, right? Because the way the so the, he so the guy that's running the pirate group, he's like he's paying attention to consumer demand, he, trends, yep. like yep. all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and he's it, like he's really into like even the the culture of the competition yeah. between he's the rappers. Truly, and stuff. He truly has a customer base that he's trying to identify well, with he, and satisfy. Well, part part of it was that he was just interested in it as his himself, right? He was a consumer of that. Ah, uh, yes, himself. of course. So he was very into passionate. the like the uh, fake rivalries and stuff between the gangs. The, the gangster rappers and so on. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, uh, the guy that was stealing the CDs from the plant wasn't really that interested in music. So he would upload them, and in exchange, what he got was access to what are called the top sites. <laughs> so basically, if you think of the um, the hierarchy of, of how piracy works to be an upside-down tree, 
the top site at the top is the stuff where all this, the originals of everything go. The root. And then they get filtered down to yeah. other stuff yeah. and filtered down to other stuff. Yeah. And then nowadays, the, once you get down to two or three levels, that's when eventually somebody posted to a torrent site. Yes. So one of the interesting things is most of this is still how the pirate scene works. Part of it is uh, like you see the little group names at the end of every pirate release. Yeah. Yes, of course, um, like Control well, HD or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, when, when one of the groups releases something, nobody else is release, can release the same thing. So if you get there first, you get all the credit for that release. Really? Yeah. So I know like if it's like a cap that. of a TV show, if you do your release, everybody else that's scrambling to try to do it too, they have to just give up. Now, if, if there's something wrong with yours, then yeah. they can nuke yours. Because a lot of times I'll see different groups release the same thing. Yeah, but usually it, it can't be exactly the same thing. Like, so one group will do like the 720p, right? One and will have another will do 1080p, SD. and yeah. one will do like Blu-ray with DTS audio, yeah, or, or something like that. Yeah. But in general, uh, unless uh, there's something wrong and it gets nuked, then the first group gets all the credit, right? And that's that's basically one of the only reasons they do it. Okay. Uh, it's it's you know they're not making any it's money. It's the off pride of, it of being the first. Yeah, yeah, and and that's where the genesis of the whole thing came from back in the day, partly even before the internet. Like so a lot of these groups existed on the old BBS days, where uh, there was also the job of courier, whose job it was to dial in one BBS, yeah. download the files, <laughs> dial into four other BBSs, and upload them. And this guy got access to the files early because he would be in charge. He would have the long distance phone bill for for mm. couriering the files. Yeah, and, and have to you know he would, he would spend money on a, a and, fast modem and, and take stuff. the risk too. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's the whole – so anyway, uh, the guy in the story uh, would get access to the top sites and then he would download movies. And then he built a couple of duplication towers and was so, spinning out DVDs like crazy and so selling I'm, them. So if I'm tracking you, uh, dude sells music CDs. In exchange for access to, to pirated movies. movies. So, he, he, he's, so then he can sell the pirated movie discs at, <laughs> at, in the parking lot of the gas station <laughs> apparently. Oh. Um, but part of, the, part of it is because A, he liked movies better. But also B, this way – there was no suspicion of he wasn't ever selling music only yeah, movies yeah. so the people at the CD distribution plant never looked at like they never got a hint of what he was doing but if they had it wouldn't have been music and, and they wouldn't have thought of him as right. being the guy that was leaking right. the CDs because there's just no, no correlation there yeah huh but anyway, the story, the the article here goes in in very good detail all the way through the system. Yeah, and about and, the ISPs he jumps around yeah, through, and, and the uh, uh, how the IRC channels worked, and mm-hmm. the leader of the group, and mm-hmm. and how that. Uh, the mistake they made there uh, was actually the using like cell phones to talk to each other. Yes. And uh, yes. Uh, so eventually, the FBI got in and, and raided these guys, and uh, the guy in the story got a couple of months for one minor charge. Uh, mostly got off in order to testify against the leader, uh, but the leader they didn't actually have enough evidence. All they had was the fact that he had the first guy in his cell phone as just the letter D. Uh, and apparently, you know, only that guy ever calls me that or something. It was very mm. loose mm. Uh, correlation. Mm-hmm. And then one other thing, I forget what it was, maybe one of the CDs or something. I forget what it was. Well, he story, had but. released, uh, it says here he had released a pre-release uh, album that was like only available at his his specific area. So they, right. they knew it was somebody from his area that released right. that and they tracked it back to him from there. But I just mean uh, what, <laughs> the second piece of evidence they had against the leader. Oh, oh, uh, oh, 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 of the, of but, the MP3 anyway, pirating the, group? The, yes, the leader yeah. of the pirating group yeah, ended yeah. up getting acquitted yeah. because the government didn't have enough evidence that <laughs> it was actually he was the guy that was the leader because yeah. he was just an online profile. Uh, but anyway, it goes in lots of good detail and it's uh, just very interesting, especially if, like me, I was like 13 Mm-hmm. Uh, watching mm-hmm. this stuff happen on IRC mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and knowing a little bit about it but not that much. Yeah. And then yeah. in college, yeah. I, 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 one of my classmates was actually a courier, at, and so he had access. And so, uh, you know, huh. he, was, he was always the guy to talk to for <laughs> stuff because he always had it before. Well, t- 
Torrance just started to come out like my very first year of college. So when I was in high school, and I told, I, told, I said that radio yep. station was posting MP3s online. Yep. Uh, well, so the next because I worked in the IT department as a high school student, the next logical conclusion was, well, I like these songs, but everybody else in school likes different songs. We should all get together and share our songs. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. created. A, I've never really said this on air because I think it was probably illegal. I created an, a public FTP site on the school district's network because everything had public IP addresses. Everything did. And I called it the Pimp Dex. And I, and I invited all the students of the high school to upload the MP3s that they had found because there was no Napster at the right. time. Yeah, there was no, nothing like that. There's definitely no LimeWire. You, you basically – BitTorrent You was, had to know about IRC, yeah. how it was, where it was, yeah. what the keys were. So what Go I to did, the secret though, room and ask bots that were run off hacked I, Windows servers I created to a, send you the files. What I did is I, I created an FTP login and I would go sp- sneaker net style and I would say here's the FTP login upload all the mp3s and download any you like and I had a little FTP banner that said if you download some mp3s please add some and within yeah. a few weeks I had and hundreds uh, FTP software had ratios yes. where yeah, it, yeah, yeah. if you upload a song you yes. download two songs and yes force I did to, turn that on yep. eventually and, and, and that was the pimp decks and uh, it was on school district equipment and once I realized like as as like Napster came along, and I realized, oh, I'm this is pirating. Didn't, that didn't even cross my mind at the time. Right. I didn't realize it was stealing at the time. And um, so when I did shut it down, one of the students made like an image backup of it, and then ended up posting it online <laughs> later on. I was like, oh no, that's not what I intended at all. Yeah. But what I learned from that was there was a genuine passion for people to share that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, it was the early days, well before there was. Uh, but anyway, uh, that article uh, goes into a lot of good detail. It's just a really good story. Yeah. Uh, you know, really good reading. It's a really but, long uh, also, yeah. And if you if you've ever been, you know, even on the periphery of some of this stuff, it's just very interesting to see it from the inside and, and even mm-hmm. almost kind of the far side from the the guys that get the stuff a, a month early. And, and yeah, it, it talks a bit about why they did it in different places. Like, there's the main guy in the story was doing it to, to get movies to sell for five dollars a disc yeah, and, make, and money. make money. Yeah. Uh, but there were some other people that a just in it for the reputation or stuff. Right. But it also talked about people love know, the music. Uh, and- people that were like a music promoter and would get information uh, early about like when the albums are coming out or what's being recorded mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and how they kind of networked all this inform- intelligence about hmm. the music business together hmm. in order to, to plan how they're going to do this. Hmm. And it also talks about how I think it was one of the Eminem albums. They actually, uh, the release date was supposed to be September, but they leaked it in like July and they had to force, they had to move up the release date in order, since everybody was already getting it. Hmm. Or there was another time when there was a, uh, a, a, the music, the label had uh, set up a, a contest or a fight between these two rappers. And it was totally if, fake though. Yeah. But if, if the one rapper's album sold more copies than the other, he was going to, ret- if, if he lost, he was going to retire from, from music. All right. And so, the, the guy in the story managed to get both uh, original discs uh, from the plant. And then he's sitting there. I have the power to decide which one of these rappers wins. <laughs> or he's kind of like, I, wanna, I wonder what would happen. And so he basically did one and then waited a couple days and then did the other. Mm-hmm. And, so make, mm-hmm. and it turns out the one that got pirated first sold more copies. Mm-hmm. Because as we've seen many times, mm-hmm. you give people the taste and they want to go buy, my, my especially own, if they want to support the artist. My so. old story, going back to that Pimp Dex and then Napster later on, I never bought a CD in my life until I started getting these MP3s. Yep. And then I realized, oh, this yeah. is something I like. I the music. Like it. It's kind of worked. Like the yeah. music store used to have you know, a pair of headphones and you listen yeah. to an album yeah. and see if yes. you like it. Yes. It was yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Right? 
Uh, so well, especially back then when the MP3 quality was not nearly as good as what you would get from a CD, mm. it would sound like you know, kind of like ass. It's it's <laughs> fascinating to be sitting at this point and look at this and be like, oh, that's that is now history. Yeah, it, it's really you know, I'm, I'm glad the story of so because some of this stuff is kind of shady. It's yeah. I'm glad that the actual yeah. story of how it went and yeah, stuff what that the you didn't really get like. before. Yeah, well, basically, normally that was the kind of information I expected to just be lost forever. Yeah. But that story is really good. And well, these people are still alive, so yeah. they can still go get the information. Yeah. And, All right. And most of them, had, you know, uh, the main – and it t- talks a little bit about what they did after. And like WW says in the chat room, back when WinApp was good. Yeah. And uh, you know – The one I had I, – I forget what it was called. Did it, it was like power or something. Uh, it looked like a radio deck. So oh, I had cool. the different decks and yeah. the equalizer yeah, and, yeah, stuff, yes. and the visualizations. That was cool. And it, it took up a lot more screen real estate than Winamp. And I don't know why I ever used it over Winamp, but I did. And then eventually. Yeah, I remember but I, I was never that big on music. So, yeah. you know, I yeah. usually use uh, VLC, VLC as my music player. Yep. Because uh, I didn't need something that managed my music for me because I'm an organization nut. So my music is all organized yeah, in on the my file structure. system. Yep. In the folder yep. structure. Yep. 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 Well, Mr. Jude, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no, that's about it. All right. Well, then I'll tell you about something that's hip, something you don't need a hint for. That's mm-hmm. IX Systems, our first sponsor, ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That's where I'd like you to land to support the show and keep us on the air and let IX Systems know you appreciate their support. And uh, we haven't seen them yet because we're pre-recording, but as the actual like real-life time of this episode airing is we've probably just got done saying hi to all the folks over at IX Systems. Early, not all the folks, but some of the folks. And it's a little behind-the-scenes thing. Uh, because because we go to so many of the same events, um, weeks, yeah. maybe even months before the events, like we start emailing back and forth and be like, hey, I'm going to see you there. I'm looking forward to back, back and forth. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Yeah. I'm looking, all this stuff, looking forward to seeing the crew. And we're bringing this. We're bringing that. And so we've been chatting back and forth about Linux Fest the whole time. So now in real life, I've already seen everybody there. But leading up to it, I'm super excited about yeah. all of uh, the chance really just to reconnect with everybody. And Alan, does, does it now, when you, go to I, when you go to these fests and IX Systems has a booth there, it feels like reconnecting with old friends, doesn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. It's, it's like I hang up with these people all the time. <laughs> and it, what's so cool about that is it's I, I if you would have tri- traveled back in time 14 15 16 17 years ago to uh, aspiring chris fisher still in high school wanting to become an it person and said at a certain point not only will you have found the hardware vendor that you will purchase all of your it systems all of your small business equipment for not only for your own small business which would blow my mind but also for all of your clients which would blow my mind. Uh, and, and then, on top of that, you're going to actually become friends with some of them and actually look forward to seeing them in person. Yeah. I just don't even know how well, I would have comprehended that. Even just like five years ago. Yeah. Go back to Alan that's never been to a conference. And be yeah. Like, We're going to go all over the place just to talk to the same people over again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, they must be really good people. Yeah, they are really good Indeed. people. Yeah, go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Check out the 11 key traits you must absolutely demand from your provider. It's a free white paper you can download. This is something really handy to grease the wheels. explains why you don't want to buy from Dell or HP or somebody else. Yeah, I mean, seriously, and we've been there. We have done that. And and basically, one of the 11 answers is fewer zeros in the price tag. Well, yeah. Actually, I think that's actually number 12. I don't think that's actually in the guide. The guide just talks about (laughs) stuff you have to ask. Questions, if you asked Dell or HP, you would notice they don't have a good answer to it. Mm Mm-hmm. And IX does. There you go. All right. So uh, go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Check them out. When you're ready to buy your next rig, something that's important, something mission critical, something that you're willing to bet your farm, something that you'd be willing to bet your job on, I wouldn't buy from anyone else. Mm-hmm. Anyone mm-hmm. but IX Systems. Sure. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Thanks, guys. Look forward to seeing you this weekend. Yes. All right, Mr. Or Jude. Was glad to see you well, last we weekend. Well, we were glad. Time, Time travel. travel. 
I mean, if Doc Brown couldn't get it quite yes. right, it's not that much. Uh, so let's uh, let's go over to our next story this week: uh, Internet mm-hmm. Security Marketing Buyer Beware, coming from CircleID.com. Uh, that's not the right story. What is this? Where did I get this? This that's, must be a link. No, it's the it's the story after the uh, next story. Oh, okay. All right. Well, ahead of me. I jumped. The ahead. sad state of sysadmins. Yes. Right oh, orange. the sad state of sysadmins. And the age of containers, containers, also known as Alan Jude's chance to hate on Docker. Yes. <laughs> how how dare I skip that? this? How dare I skip right. this? <laughs> yes. All right. So system administration is in a sad state. Oh. It's kind of a mess. Oh. Yeah. Uh, you know, specifically, the, the article is not complaining about old school sysadmins mm. that, for example, know how to keep systems running and manage updates and <laughs> upgrade paths and and the kind of stuff Chris and I talk about on the show like every day. <laughs> um, but this rant is about containers, like pre-built VMs yeah. and the incredible mess they cause because of the missing concept notions of trust and upgrades, specifically well, upgrades. Is the problem really that it sort of makes like deploying an application as easy as top, type, typing a Docker command, all of a sudden you've got a mail server, all of a sudden. Now, now that in itself isn't really the problem. Okay. The problem is that the Docker thing expects that you will never upgrade it. And then, oh, hey, there's a patch for the mail server. Oh, How does at, that work as, in, in, as in that Docker container is expected to be static. Yeah. And that's kind of horrible. Same yeah. with a pre-built VM. It's like, or, or specifically, if you don't have the ability to set it up, do you really have the ability to upgrade it properly? Right. You know? Yeah, you'd ha- it seems like that, but... Hmm. Like, I can see the advantage of Docker as far as cloning environments and building stuff, or kind of like the vagrant type thing. I want to have the same environment as the developer when yeah. I'm working on it. But you but don't. for long-term operational use of things, when you're building a service that is going to be exposed to the internet, that really needs to be a curated environment that a person but, understands. But doesn't that seem like that's going to depend? I'm trying to, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm drawing on sort of my weakness here on how mm-hmm. this would work. But if I subscribe to a Docker container is it going to be based on who maintains that container on how the I don't think the container has any ability to be upgraded. Yeah. Right? It's a file system image. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, and That's, that oh, is a problem. So, so they bring up a great example. Uh, so there's Hadoop, which yeah. is a big, complicated Apache application. Uh, nobody seems to know how to build Hadoop from scratch anymore. So they're looking for the easy button. Well, no, it's just because they've switched to doing Docker and, and pre-built VMs and stuff, there's literally nobody left that actually knows how to make it work from scratch. <laughs> Great. Uh, it's an incredible mess of dependencies, version requirements, and build tools. Uh, that's the other thing. You end up with, you know, I need between this version and this version. They can't be further ahead. So if you have a more up-to-date system, you can't install this. Or if you don't have exactly these versions of these things, right. it won't work. Right. That's horrible. Uh, but also, you know, none of these fancy tools... Uh, still build using a traditional make command. Every command, every tool has to have its own incompatible, non-portable method of the day to build, right? And you see this especially with like Python and Ruby yeah, and stuff. Yeah. It's like there's pip and there's... Yes, or a, yes. But especially bad is the ones where there's four or five different competing ones rather than one, you know, there's like go install or whatever, that's fine. But uh, when there's like four or five different competing frameworks or even as like a PHP application, it's like you have to go download this framework in order to install it. Mm-hmm. There was one for Java. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it's what uh, the Puppet Master, uh, oh, yes, yes, Puppet yes. Database server thing uses. And it's just a mess of dependency. It's just like, I, I don't want to do all this. I just want to install this one application. <laughs> Why do I have to install yes. 20 dependencies yes. just for the build system that will then download the pre-built versions of this Java crap? Right, right. And it's like, what the hell? Yeah. And since nobody's still able to compile things from scratch, everybody's just downloading a pre-built binary from some random website 
without any authentication or signature, right? So it could be infected. It could be NSA compromised. It could be lots of things. Yes. The, the Hadoop wiki page uh, of Debian is a typical example. Uh, essentially, people have given up in about 2010 being able to actually build Hadoop from source for Debian and instead and, and offer nice packages. So instead, you have to do the official Apache way, mm-hmm. which is to build Apache Big Top, you apparently first install Puppet 3 and let it download magic data from the internet. Then it tries to run sudo puppet <laughs> to enable the NSA backdoors. Uh, for example, it will download and install an outdated precompiled uh, Java JDK yep. uh, because it considers you too stupid to install Java. Right. And then it hopes uh, to uh, – then it downloads uh, Gradle to build and doesn't throw a 200-line useless backtrace error. And then He's uh, not joking, by the way. Yeah. And then eventually it executes the command bash, my yeah. C, wget a, a .deb file – and then, and then execute it, it yeah. and extract it. Yeah. So, uh, and I'd be willing to run that. It runs that as as root. I'd be yes, willing to build. Uh, but more importantly, if you look, it's not using dpackage to install that package. It's extracting it. Oh no! Without registering the installation. Oh no! It's just extracting it as if it was a tar file. Yeah. And splatting the files on your file system. Yeah. Not registering it in the package manager. Right. So y- where you can properly uninstall right. it. Where you can upgrade it. Right. And it's it's tracked oh, as part of the system. Oh, that's so horrible. Right, like it says here. No, that doesn't even install the package properly. It just extracts it into the root directory, allowing it to overwrite any files it wants and to conflict with other packages. Ugh. And it, if you look there in the wget, no HTTPS at all. No. The NSA could easily intercept that and fill it with crap. Right. And uh, so instead of writing a clean modular architecture, everything these days is just morphed into a huge pile of interlocking dependencies. And, you know, lastly... Check the Hadoop class path, which is where it loads all the Java jars, contains over 100 dependencies. <laughs> and that's without even using <laughs> the HBase, uh, Giraffe, Flume, Crunch, Pig, Hive, right. yep. Mahout, Solar, Spark, Elasticsearch plugin. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, you know, so what we've seen now is instead of people having um, stuff, they have, we, they have a, a stack, yeah, which yeah. is yeah. a bunch of dependencies built up on top of right. each other. I have no idea what this is. It's all so, bunch of magic. You know, we have no idea what it is, but there's you know Maven, Ivy, SBT, sure. and a sure. bunch of other go-to oh, tools. Oh, oh, yeah. you. System basically download unsigned binaries from the internet and run them. And you know, it it's also goes on to talk about you know the other big one we see is websites whose instructions are use curl on this URL mm-hmm. and then pipe it into sudo bash. Mm-hmm. It's like. That's like yeah. the worst thing you could ever do. Uh, number two, uh, kernel developer uh, Greg KH, you know, uh, number, Linus is number two, was just on Google Plus this weekend mm-hmm. uh, calling for website uh, for how-to websites to stop with the curl commands with the pseudo prefix yeah. and, and right there for people to copy. Stop it. Stop. Well, also, we've, call. we've covered on the show before the ones where they just print regular instructions and you, write, you just drag across and copy and paste. Where when you actually do the copying, it changes what you copied. Yeah, remember that one? Yeah. So it's like you copy and paste some innocuous like echo commands, and instead it's in adding a new root user and sending your IP address to some remote server so the guy can log in, stuff like that. Uh, so he says that you know, uh, and with containers, the mess gets even worse because uh, you know, have you ever tried to security update a container? <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, you know that's why jails are better. But anyway, oh, uh, but I'm bum. Well, even even EasyJL has its problems with updating. Uh, so installing security updates works. It's the major upgrades from like uh, FreeBSD 9.2 to 9.3 that's still a bit mucky, but we're working on it. Uh, but if you do it the regular way, it's not a problem. It's EasyJL tries to cut some corners, uh, <coughs> which were important back in the day when storage was a problem, but mm. it's less so now, so I'm mm. not sure what the re- – anyway. Mm. 
uh, to the author of the article, he says that the whole way we do containers now feels like downloading Windows shareware in the 90s, which in the 90s, the program would just nag at you, whereas once we got into the 2000s, it included spyware and Adware. the Ask toolbar. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, uh, when will the first Docker image appear that contains the Ask toolbar? <laughs> or the first internet worm spread by a flawed Docker images? You think? Yeah. The Ask toolbar, probably not, but something that has some problem. It I, affects I all Docker that. machines or containers of well, or some popular Somebody Docker. uploads an image and every yeah. person who installs it, their yeah. machine starts being part of a botnet. That's pretty freaky. Yeah. Or, what I'm looking for is, you know, one of those ones that has the instruction where you go to some website and you do the curl thing or that Debian thing, and then they let their domain expire because they don't do it anymore. And I register that domain and put a new file up at that URL. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And booyah, you're now running whatever I want as root or extracting whatever files I want. I can replace your SSH daemon with mine that, you know, lets my public key get in as root yeah. without logging anything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like we saw the NSA did. Uh, and then, so, uh, there's a little update to his article. He's posted, he says, it's been pointed out that, you know, the uh, curl pipe pseudo bash thing has existed long before Docker. So, mm, yes. can't blame it all on Docker. Very true. Docker's just making it worse. They didn't invent any of this badness. They just, so they that's just right, sort of baked uh, it in, yeah. didn't they? They baked it in. So, now it's pretty much mainstream to download and run untrusted software in your data center. Uh it's bad, like really bad. And before, men's would try hard to prevent security holes. Now they call themselves DevOps and happily introduce them into the network all by themselves. Wow. That is a strong statement. Yeah. And at the end, what leaves me thinking is now I'm a lot less excited about the idea of trying to build something Docker-like for jails. Hmm. Because mostly the same ideas. I don't feel like uh, – so Rocket comes along. There's other things that have come along that are a little more intelligent about. First of all, here's an idea, signing. You yeah. know, let's introduce some signing. Let's introduce a pretty, a pretty uh, sane update mechanism. Let's up, let's introduce a way to update uh, uh, on a more reoccurring basis. I feel like people are trying to so tackle I think that's, that. That's the way you definitely do it on FreeBSD. Is the Docker inst- like the jail that you build that has yeah. your mail server or whatever mm-hmm. would point at a special uh, package repo that exists somewhere that could be updated on a regular basis. Yeah. So it would, uh, you'd be able to just run package upgrade and it would download the latest version of Postfix and and patch yours. Yeah. And, you know, it could just have a bunch of stuff like that. Yeah. And I think it's entirely doable. It's just – it's that much more work that somebody has to think about. Now. Right. Yeah. But mostly, yes, uh, you still have to be a real sysadmin, and we need to uh, stop just trying to let Docker do it right. all for us. And there, there is a difference between using something for development and using something in production, yeah. so like, too. So Vagrant kind of came up with this idea of, hey, I'm the developer. I built uh, – I'm, I'm working on this project in this programming language, like a, a specifically a web app. And so the people that want to help me build this web app are not sysadmins. Yeah. So they're not going to be able to s- install their own Apache, set up the yeah. PHP the right yeah. way. Yeah. So I, I make this Vagrant recipe, and anybody can get exactly the same environment with the same versions of everything that I have. Right. That's great for development. But it's not good to be what you deploy into production on the internet for people to poke at. Not the same thing. So while the idea of Vagrant is good, using something like that in the form of Docker for publicly accessible services just seems like it's missing half yeah. the point. And it does make you think if FreeBSD or other places want to introduce something like uh, the, the whole Docker checkout system or something like that, they've got to think about the the ramifications of what they're asking the biggest one is, administrators to do. Uh, what, what's supposed to happen with the Docker image a year after you've deployed it? 
Yeah. Well, or, screw a year. Or yeah, six What's months. supposed to happen with the Docker image three when months. Heartbleed 2.0 comes out? In three months. Yeah. Three months even. Yeah. I mean, it is and, a serious And Heartbleed 2.0. Yeah. Uh, all right, Alan. Well, let me tell you about something that might make all this a little bit easier. That's our sponsor, DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean right now. Remember our awesome promo code, SnapOcean, to get a $10 credit. Now, if you're not familiar with DigitalOcean, I have some knowledge that's going to change your world. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You're going to have root access to this mother. You're going to be able to access that thing on the cloud through a console using HTML5-only technologies. I mean, no Java. I mean, no Flash. And you're going to get console access from post all the way up to that login. And users can get started in less than 55 seconds. Think about it. Can your virtualization system get you started in less than 55 seconds? This is a system up in the cloud. $5 a month is the price, too. 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte. A terabyte. And they have lots of stuff bigger than that if you need it. Yes. Uh, That's true. That's the starting point. Yeah. That's that's the smallest thing. And yeah. For five dollars, that's yeah. a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. That's yeah. what's nuts. And and the pricing plans are like it's really sense. It's really sensible. So it's just very incremental. It makes a lot of sense. But the other thing I don't even mention it all that often is they have freaking hourly pricing, yes. which is super cool for testing. Yeah. Or also, uh, we looked at for package building. If if you want to compile all of the FreeBSD ports tree, it that takes like a day. Well, if you pay seven cents an hour for twenty four hours, it's yeah. a lot less than keeping the machine on. Yeah, you just you spin up the infrastructure as you need it. Yeah, exactly. yeah well, no big deal though. And you have an API, so you can schedule exactly. it. Exactly, you can literally have a computer in the corner that says, "Oh, once a week, spin up Jenkins. Uh, Jenkins instance I've built. Uh, check all my code. Make sure it all compiles fine." And if it does, then destroy the instance and close down and yeah. don't pay any money. Yeah, DigitalOcean has a really great API. In fact, they just revved it. And mm-hmm. uh, it lets you take advantage of stuff like that, of destroying droplets on demand or spinning them up as you need them. Or creating snapshots. Yes. And that's this is where it comes in. Uh, hey, so you have your your uh, DigitalOcean instance and it's got your mail server on it. And yeah. you need to upgrade it. Yeah. So you know what you do? Yeah. You take a snapshot. Yeah. Then you do no the kidding. upgrade yes. uh, on a clone of the snapshot. Right. And if it works then you move all the load over to the clone and keep yep. it and throw away the old one. Yep. And if it doesn't, you throw away the new one and start over again. Yeah, I And look at that. Your mail server was up the whole time. And it's really easy if you don't want to use the API. They have a very intuitive control panel. Yes, the control panel. Let you do all this. Sexy. Yeah, it's it's really great. And uh, and so you can either do it there or you can do it with the API. I've, we've got people in the audience who've just written into their package manager, so they run a pre-script before they do an update. It automatically takes a DigitalOcean snapshot, and then they have a post-script after a successful update that cleans things up. It's pretty mm-hmm. cool, and there's a lot of ways you could leverage it too. They've got free BSD instances, lots of Linux instances, tons of tutorials. Just use the One promo code. Installs for yeah. lots of applications. Use the promo code SnapOcean. You get a ten dollar credit. You can try it out for two months. Try out a free BSD machine. Yes. Why not? Please do. DigitalOcean.com. Check them out. Thanks, DigitalOcean. Mm-hmm. All right, Alan. So Circle ID has our next story this week. Yes. Buyer beware. Internet security marketing. Oh, boy, no kidding, huh? So this is about, you know, as security breaches increasingly make big headlines, thousands of internet security companies are chasing tens of billions of dollars in potential revenue. But the the, the author's article, uh, specifically one of them is Paul Vixie. Paul Vixie, yeah. A very famous guy and the CEO of uh, Farsight Security. uh, says, we are alarmed at the kind of subversive untruths that vendors, spin doctors, are using to draw well-intentioned customers into their doors. Mm, Look at them calling it out. Yeah, you know, a lot of companies are, you know, trying to say, oh, we have this whole cybersecurity solution. You just buy our thing and yeah. you'll be so- totally safe. It's like, no. Uh, or worse, the one they point out is things like the attack maps. And they're like, yes. So these uh, sales marketing guys come in and show our CEO this attack map. Uh, mine, mine crashed. 
My, mine totally oh. crashed. I had a t- I had an attack map, but it oh, re- well, that's the secret sauce for the end of the. Oh, okay. All right, I won't show it. Then. Try to get it working. Then. All right, I'll reload right. it while you yeah. while you go. Yes. Sir. So anyway, uh, so with the attack map, right? So the the marketing guy goes in and gets the CEO or, or some person that's in charge of the budget, uh, and shows him the attack map. Says, oh, you'll be able to tell everything that's going on, and then like we talked about last week. Well, really, that's telling you what's happening in real time. I got to work now. Yeah, I heard this. I hear it. <laughs> this is the best attack map ever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you can pull that up now, I guess. Okay, all right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, here's a, a mock of an attack map just showing random lines being fired all over the place. <laughs> and really, what does this tell you that's happening? The U.S. is nuking Australia? What? <laughs> Yeah, apparently 4chan is doing something. Uh, it's probably fine, though. It says in the log down here. Oh, yes, uh, the, the, the log is yeah. uh, making fun of it. Yeah. 4chan against HKG. NSA tells us we can't tell you if it works. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if, you, if you take out the map part of the URL, they have an explanation of what the site is. All right, okay. And okay. Uh, I'll, I'll bring it up here. It's a uh, threat butt. Yeah, but if you scroll down a little bit more. They're, they have the explanation that talks about the public cloud. Our global platform hosted in China is able to detect all local attacks, APTs, and even advanced persistent threats. Advanced <laughs> APTs, <laughs> which adva- advanced, advanced persistent threats. Uh. <laughs> Threat bud is currently in private beta, but our real-time map and API are partially released. <laughs> is it, yeah, so uh, we can detect threats coming from countries you heard of once in a report. <laughs> We're bad. We guarantee our attributions are accurate as we paid for some expensive MaxMind GOIP database so we can pinpoint uh, the <laughs> initial source. This is Viking-grade threat intelligence for any enterprise. <laughs> Viking-grade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, on the sum of this, it's, all right, here it is. Uh, by leveraging our patented, our, our patented Clown Strike technology, Clown we're strike. able to harness the raw power of private, hybrid, public, and cumulus cloud systems to bring threat intelligence to any enterprise. <laughs> threat butt. And they yeah. have a video, too. I don't, I don't know what's in this video. Yeah, here. I'm, I'm a little concerned about what's in that video. <laughs> the whole world is <laughs> under threat, it says. That's all it is. It's just music. And then they just have... Okay. I don't think there's anything to worry about in this video, Alan. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's great. So anyway, uh, they're going on about how some of this stuff is basically, you know, trying to trick people into spending money. And, yeah. And You think? Or, or basically it's about telling people you have a solution to a problem when you don't actually have a whole solution. <laughs> I like that it's in private beta. That makes me want it more. Yeah. Threat but... Uh, so anyway, what they're saying is... Uh, what do uh, what would do more good for most organizations than an increased internet security uh, spending was a tough love school out in the mountains where the leadership teams of those companies would learn what actual threats feel like and what kind of teamwork it actually and planning it takes to actually build a secure environment. Mm-hmm. So literally, take them out into the woods and you know stick mountain lines on them and look, make them learn how to work together and and you know understand what threats and security actually mean. Yeah. Uh, and I think that actually probably makes a lot of sense. Uh, but, you know, specifically, security does not come from locks or weapons or cameras. Rather, it comes from your attitude, your awareness, and your positioning. Hmm. And that's all really true. Yeah, that is, isn't it? And, and it's, But, you know, it sounds like one of those things you say, and then how do you translate that to, like, a corporate culture? Right. Uh, but they have some examples. So in the cloud, everything is crystal clear. Look here. We instantly see where attacks are coming from, except for that we don't. Most of the time, there's absolutely no clue where the attack is actually originating from. Yeah. 
And also, every one of those lines on the, attack, on the map is not an actual attack, you know, where somebody's database got compromised and all the user data got leaked. Half the time, it's a port scan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the cloud, we can neatly distinguish between benign user behavior and attack behavior, except mm-hmm. for that we can't. It's actually one of the really hard problems to solve in information security. Mm-hmm. You can't tell whether that's that user accessing that file or if that user's account's been compromised and they're accessing that file. Ooh, or, like- you know, is it... it, it is somebody accessing my Google account from Japan because I happen to have flown to Japan for a conference, or is it because some guy in Japan has taken over my account? Hard to say. Yeah. Uh, and also, in the cloud, we have instant knowledge and visibility when an attack occurs, except for that we don't. Like, we really don't. The latest statistics say it usually takes around 200 days to discover an espionage-style intrusion. Yikes. Right? And, and so Yeah. That, that sounds about right. Like, you know, if, if, if it's the Chinese APT guys and they got in and stole your files, you don't find out until they use the data for something. Mm, true, yeah. Right? I guess like, so, yeah. You know, That's how they you, didn't delete yeah. the files. They point. didn't break, you know, when they're purposely trying to be stealthy, you don't find out about it right mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. What good is that attack map if, uh, you know, the line doesn't show up until 200 days after it happened? Yeah, very true, very true. <laughs> yeah, so in the end, you have uh, just as data can be sold as intelligence, uh, a lot of security technologies are being sold as a security solution rather than what they are, which is just a very narrow, focused appliance that does one thing and only under best-case scenario type things, right? You know, so you, you buy this super firewall, and sure, it protects the network against the certain things that pro- the firewall is programmed to stop, but it doesn't stop anything else, and so it's not a whole solution to solve all your security problems forever, right? Uh, usually, at best, it stops the types of attacks we know about at the time that that product was built, which would be at least a couple of months, if not years, before you buy it. Yeah, very true. Hmm. Uh, you know, too many of these appliances do unfortunately not easily integrate with other appliances, or with the rest of your security portfolio, uh, or with your policies and procedures. You know, unless you're buying every one of your appliances from the same vendor, maybe then they'll work together. But usually, even then, mm-hmm. not so well. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we had something where we built kind of a platform and had all these different pluggable modules that were doing stuff and working together and sharing data in a common format or something, we might actually be able to build something that has more security. Yeah, yeah. But you know, right mm-hmm. now there's there's no impetus to, for security appliance vendors to make their stuff fit together. Yeah, there's no incentive at all. In fact, yeah. there's it's like, no, you want to buy all your stuff from us, so it won't yeah. work together. Yeah, yeah there's an incentive yeah. not uh, to. The buyers of magical security boxes, uh, they don't really understand, based on the promises and of permanent security, are probably not really applying vendor patches, right? So if you're the type of person that buys a box and thinks that you're perfectly secure because you have that box, mm-hmm. you're probably the same type of person that's not applying the patches to that box, and that <laughs> box is not doing nothing Very other true. than being a new attack surface. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, and, you know... Or your entire infrastructure is made up of other magical boxes that no one quite understands exactly how they work. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not And really then we start asking, they just start throwing out buzz terms. Boom, yep. boom, boom. Yeah. So what we really need is a platform that allows all this different information, put it in, and come up with scores for stuff to kind of separate the, the Again, I go the, back to Facebook's thing. Yeah. Well, Facebook's thing is about sharing signatures. Yeah. Yeah. That, if they open that up so that I could get in, then sure. Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, right now it's like uh, Twitter, Facebook, and mm-hmm. Yahoo, and a couple. Of yeah, people. the elites it's like invite only. Yeah, doesn't do us a lot of good. Doesn't do us. When, when it's but just, at the same time, I can also understand that. 
Uh, you know, like when we yeah. talked about the bug bounty thing. Yeah. If we get a bunch of people in there and they start just spamming. I know, I know, I know. Like I know. the one I, I definitely see is somebody hooking up their thing to just basically spam the data from that attack map into the API or something. And then that's a bunch of noise that's actually making it hard for them to actually pull out the useful information hmm. out of the threat exchange. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, uh, it says, the weaknesses exploited by bad guys may appear to be on the perimeter of a victim's network or in the components of a victim's infrastructure. But in fact, the weaknesses we mostly see are in the culture of the organization and in the psychology of the staff and especially that of the leadership. And no security solution wrapped in a black box can actually solve those problems. Right. Those are people problems. Yeah, that's true. You know, there is no silver bullet uh, in internet security. There are no ways to kill the monster in a way that it will stay dead. Uh, you know, even if we solve every security problem that exists today, there are new ones tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, you know, we in the internet security business look uh, for current affairs and learn from how those and how to detect and prevent those attacks. Right. But how do we predict, detect, and prevent the attacks that haven't been invented yet? Right. And and but you know, rest assured, there's no end game and. Uh, we put uh, one bad guy in prison for <laughs> every hundred or so bad guys yeah. that uh, joins the field every month. Hmm. And there's no device or method, however powerful, which will offer a salient defense for uh, more than just a short time. I disagree. Hmm? I disagree. What's that? The TechSnap program. It's not a device. But it is a mechanism for okay. which we can provide defense against these threats. That's well, <laughs> we, we can tell you what the new ones are starting to look like. We can't yeah. really tell you about the ones that aren't invented No, yet. but in a way, isn't that better? We have predicted a couple things. Yeah, yeah. Like you can kind of see the trends and the way they're going and you defend against that. Not a specific instance, but the general technology and idea and philosophy behind the attack. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the the bad guys endlessly adapt and we have to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And importantly, the bad guys understand how our systems work. Yeah. And the sad truth is that a lot of times the, the good guys don't actually know how their system works. Right. Because they have to go through a vendor to find out and the bad guys can do the research. Because they got they they learned enough to go make some money on their own. Exactly. <laughs> and then uh, now is what I was going to point out the uh, threat, but fake attack map. But we yeah, that, yeah, so. yeah. That was a great map. But it was really good. And it fit. I like the pew pew. I like the pew pew. I have you started playing. We had to explain <laughs> yeah. that. So if you want to see that threat map or the whole article, we'll have links in the show notes. Everything else just talked yeah, about. Yeah, the, uh, the funny little attribution messages on that threat button yeah. are pretty funny. Yeah, they really are. Uh, all right. Well, then I have one last thing to talk to you about before we jump into the feedback segment, and that's our great friends over at Ting. I'd like you to go to techsnap.ting.com mm-hmm. right now and go check out Ting. It's mobile that makes sense. It's mobile that's done differently. There's no contract, and uh, there's no early termination fee as a result of that, and you only pay for what you use. And this is really nice. You can have as many devices as you want because it's only a flat $6 for the line. So just add the device as you need it, $6 per line, and you only pay for what you use. Ting will take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, and they'll add them up at the end of the month. Whatever bucket you fall into, that's all you have to pay. That's Ting. That makes sense, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You probably ought to try it out. Plus, now, Ting has GSM and CDMA networks. You can bring more devices than ever. If you go to techsnap.ting.com, you get $25 off your first device. I'd like you to go to techsnap.ting.com and click on that How Much Would You Save link. Go over Mm -hmm. there and plug your usage in there and just get an idea of the difference you could save over two years. I'd be surprised if you wouldn't be able to buy a new laptop every two years with your savings. How do I know that? big difference. I've been a Ting customer for more than two years. 
Yep. I've saved over $2,200 by switching to Ting. Uh, and uh, one of the things we've talked about on Ting is how are they doing their fiber internet because as TechSnap members, we care a lot about that. And uh, yes. they've actually we posted We know how a video. awesome Ting is and how awesome the company behind it is and right. the support and the people. The wireless uh, – Two Cows is a great company. The wireless industry, nobody's doing it like Ting. If they could bring it to the internet, we'd love it. And they have an update on Ting Fiber Internet. Yes. D-Lister70 on Reddit asks, how is the Ting Internet Project going? It's going well, and uh, and I appreciate you asking. Um, the reason I say I appreciate you asking is, is uh, I think most people understand that um, that we're not going to be offering internet service to, to half the country anytime soon. We're not going to be offering internet service to, to 10% of the country. I think there are people who are um, who are looking at this and hoping it comes to their town, and I think there's a lot of people who are just kind of rooting for us, and, and we, we genuinely appreciate that. Um, right now, it's, it's uh, there's sort of two key things going on. One is we're building the product, uh, the Ting Internet product, and, and basically what that means is... Uh, um, uh, an interface to uh, to provision that service, get yourself signed up, uh, manage that service, choose what features you want if if, uh, if that's relevant at all. Basically, something that parallels what, what we've done in in, in mobile. Um, and then, secondly, uh, we're building out the fiber networks, and and so that's only going on right now in in, in two markets: Westminster, Maryland, and in Charlottesville, Virginia. And so uh, so there, we're into the uh, you know the entire process of uh, of. You know, digging into the ground, climbing up on poles, wow. and uh, and getting fiber uh, throughout those uh, those neighborhoods, and then all the way to those uh, to those homes and businesses in Westminster, Maryland. Uh, the town is building the network in Charlottesville, Virginia. We acquired a company called Blue Ridge Internet Works (BRI), uh, and they uh, have already begun that process of building fiber out. So, pretty soon. Uh, the supply of, uh, of fiber comes together with the with the the, the interface, the front end product, uh, and we start to get people signed up, and and, uh, and we can't wait. And 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 then I guess the next step after that is uh, we we get good at it, we provide a good experience, uh, we start to get confident that we know what we're doing, and we we start to look to build out from there. Oh, I want Ting Fiber Internet so bad. Yep. But you know what you, what you can't have today is Ting Cellular Service. Go to techsnap.ting.com. They'll take $25 off your first device. If you have a Ting-compatible device, there's a lot more of them today as well. Then they give you a $25 service credit. If you're like me, that might pay for your first month of the Ting service. Yep. they got a lot of great devices. They're unlocked. You own them. Everything from like 70 bucks all the way up to the Nexus 6 high-end stuff. Techsnap.ting.com. If nothing else, go get a GSM device. Put it in a tablet. Go, I mean, they have the SIM. Just get the yeah, SIM, just $9. The SIM, $9. Just put it on a tablet. Yep. It's super sweet. Uh, techsnap.ting.com if you want to support the TechSnap program. Now, Alan, normally right now I would plug like a BSD Now episode. But since we're pre-recording, we don't have a BSD Now episode available. I would Although be, there probably actually will be one. Yeah. At, yeah. And probably pretty soon there will be some interviews that you guys got from Linux Fest yes. Northwest in BSD Now. So go check out the BSD Now program. It's another show Alan does on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. And uh, it's him and Chris Moore, who is the co-creator of PC, or is he the sole Soul creator, creator sole creator of PCBSD, uh, mm-hmm. which is probably uh, a distribution of FreeBSD. You've heard of? Do you guys call it distributions? Yep. Well, PCBSD is yes. FreeBSD isn't a distribution. Copycats. Operating system. Copycats. And then PCBSD mm-hmm. because it's, it, you guys would probably call it a spin. Oh, but you're right. We, we don't would. have distributions. We probably would call it up. a spin. Yeah. You're right. So yeah. Well, some, sometimes we call it because we it is FreeBSD underneath. Yeah, it is unmodified FreeBSD. Yeah. with its own package repo that's compiled slightly differently. Yeah. 
and with all the uh, complicated setups I've done but for between, you. But between you who uses BSD uh, for, I, your, I, for your I, livelihood, I, you're running it right now on your laptop. PCBSD is yeah. running the show And right Chris now. Moore, who works on PCBSD. I mean, I don't know if there could be any better, two better people to do mm-hmm. B, uh, a BSD podcast. So BSD now, available they, on they, the Jupiter They can replace network. me with uh, Ken, Chris's brother, who wrote the <laughs> Lumina desktop. I don't know, actually. Don't cut, don't cut yourself too short. You, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think Ken could fill in. Yes. But I don't know if he could replace you. Uh, so go check out the BSD Now program uh, for all of that and uh, more over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the – wait. No, the feedback's not done. With the news all done. Yes. Now that it's time for the feedback. Now it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better. Starting to sub... No, nobody did... None of you... Well, it would be great, theoretically, if somebody created a, a thread over on our subreddit, over at techsnap.reddit.com. Because that's, that's where a lot of the ones this week came from. They just came from last week's subreddit. Yeah. Well, and actually, there was a question that the subreddit answered so well. It's like, well, we don't really need to answer it now. They handled it. We probably should have thrown it in the roundup or something just so that people have good. the answers. We may still. Mark writes in with our first email about preemptively changing the key. Mm-hmm. I do backups to a remote site. Before I before the backup leaves my computer, it gets encrypted with a key. It hasn't happened to my knowledge so far, but let's just say in theory, somehow this encryption key gets compromised. Can I re-encrypt with the new key all the remotely backed up data remotely? Or do I need to download them all, decrypt all of that data, and then encrypt it all with the new key, and then upload it again? Are there any good strategies for changing the key of an off-site encrypted backup so that the remote site doesn't get any of the real files, like changing the password, say, from time to time? Thanks for the insights. Regards, Mark. Well, uh, for compromised key, not so much. For just changing the password from time to time, it can be. Generally, what you're doing when you're encrypting uh, files like that is you're not encrypting the files with your password. Mm. You're encrypting with a big random secret key that you then encrypt with the password. So then you use the password, you get the key, and then you use the key to encrypt the files. So you can change the password that's used to encrypt the key without having to re-encrypt all the data. Right. But if you want to re-encrypt the data, yeah, you have to re-encrypt it all. Now, depending Which on your trust level, downloading of the, it all. Yeah, well, depending on your trust level of the road side, you might just issue the commands to re-encrypt, but most likely you don't trust the road side, otherwise you wouldn't be well, encrypted. Well, most in the first likely, aren't you just getting like basic file access too? Yeah. Uh, so, <coughs> my solution would be use Tarsnap, but otherwise, yeah, you basically have to re-download or throw away your old backups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Don't let the key get compromised. This and don't is have a, that this problem. Is, <laughs> this is a serious, seriously good consideration so, uh, about well, remote cloud backup. Yeah. So uh, the. I'd say the best use case normally is have a, a, a schedule for when you're going to ro- rotate your keys, like say once a quarter, and you keep the old key, uh, but you know everything. So on the first three months of the month, you encrypt with key one, uh, and you keep that key. But on, on the beginning of the fourth month, you use a new key and everything. Yeah. That, and so then, uh, when you're done, when, you, when you're ready to age out and get rid of the backups from the first three months. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. just destroy that encryption key, mm-hmm. and then it doesn't matter that the cloud backup company has your files from three months ago because no one has the key now. Right. You've destroyed it. Right. <clears throat> as long as you're not paying and for then, the storage. Oh, yes. You, can, you tell them to delete the files, but yeah. you don't have to worry if they actually deleted them or not right. because they don't have the key. Yeah. Uh, but yes, so to help mitigate damage from this type of thing, it'd be best if you rotated your keys like every three months so that uh, in the event of something like this, mm-hmm. you, you can isolate the damage to like one three-month window. Okay, Jose writes in with our next uh, email, and he says, I run a small coffee shop. 
Uh, over time, my shop grew, and so did my assortment and services that I provide with that. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> now that I'm also offering a place where customers can also sit and drink coffee. I'm not tech savvy, but I'm trying to do everything that is possible myself. I will learn also by, I said, I also want to provide wireless access to the internet to my customers. Not that they necessarily need it. They probably have data plans, but it's a nice extra mm-hmm. and a reason to come to my coffee shop. Here's my concern. Is it enough and is it safe to use VLANs in my coffee shop or should I physically separate the cables and switches for open guest wireless and closed network for my business? <clears throat> do you want to stop right there? Uh, yeah, if we can start with that part of the question. Um, VLANs will be good enough. Uh, there's... The only way around that would be to get into the management interface of the switch and change it. And normally, only VLAN one has access to that management now, interface. Now, in, in in the implementation of VLANs, would there be? Um, would you have them do different network segmentation? How would you utilize? Uh, the yes, VLAN? the different VLANs would have different subnets, uh, and then you eventually, I guess, you were going to have to bring it together into one router. And that's where the trickiness gets if you have a random off-the-shelf D-Link or something. It's not going to want to have two different network segments on it. Yeah. Uh, Do you think for just raw simplicity, it might be better to physically separate them just so that way it's sort of a it, foolproof design? It's less likely of you making a mistake that way. <laughs> yeah, uh, kind of So <laughs> that, yes. Uh, basically, the, the, at some point, they're going to have to come together unless you're going to pay for two separate internet connections, though. All right, well, here's this big so, question. Uh, PFSense uh, and then the two VLANs. Could PFSense like do this, Alan? He says, is it possible to set up a router in a way so that every guest device would get a separate VLAN so that it cannot see other guests in this wireless? And if after a guest leaves the coffee shop, this VLAN gets assigned to another new guest so that in a way all uh, my guests are safe from being hacked from each other on the same wireless? Or would it be simpler just to use like a 10.xxx IP range for every guest? And get its own IP address, maybe with a different subnet. Anything that is simple to set up, automated, not expensive, would be appreciated. Or if you have any other better solutions. You might be able to trick something with the DHCP server to give each client a subnet that it's in where no other clients are in that subnet. So each hmm. client would get like a slash 30 that would just have a, a virtual interface of the router and itself. And But the thing is that uh, a, a savvy person could jump in one somebody else's subnet or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because it's wireless, the traffic's all going around in the air. Yeah, there's so, that, there's that yeah, too. Yeah, and it's there's broadcast like a, and stuff It's that like a happen. hub. Yeah. Um, but you could do something kind of like that. The other one, uh, to actually get to the VLAN level, though, you would need an access point that does virtual APs, and you'd have to have each customer connect to a different AP. And that, that I think DDWRT um, might <clears throat> offer that. Some and, and, and basically with that one, what you're getting is uh, like the, the hotel in Japan had – where they didn't do that, but what they did is when you wanted Wi-Fi, you went up to the front desk and they printed off a little receipt that had a username and password. Mm. You would have basically an AP and password. Mm. And then only people that use that one ticket would be in the same network. But that, finding a, a, a Wi-Fi router that will do that <laughs> is complicated. And, yeah. Um, basically, your best bet probably is uh, just uh, PFSense. And a switch that does VLANs and be able to separate yeah. your business network with yeah. possibly you your credit about, card like, processing machine like, uh, separate from the guest Wi-Fi. The business network that has the credit card processing on it, that's like a 10 dot something network. And the guest wireless is like a 192 network. Is that- sure, or you could have two different 10 networks as long as they're not in the yeah, same Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> All right. Okay, very good. Chris writes in with a free NAS and ZFS question, which we our last two questions will be mm-hmm. ZFS questions to round us out. He says, hello there, Chris and Alan. Here is my ZFS question. Here's a picture of my volume layout on my free NAS box, and I'll pull this up for you, Alan. I don't know if uh, yep. if you really want to – do you have it there on your machine? Okay. I do. You can look at it while I'll read the question. He says, uh, uh, am I correct in assuming that this layout is fine, or should I remake any volumes and move this data from one to the another? Is there anything detrimental to leaving volumes like this? Currently, I only snapshot my personal volume. 
All right. So, and I'll, I, do you want to do you want to kind of tackle that? I hate just the, the layout. The term volumes for this stuff because in ZFS, a volume is a completely different thing. But but free now is called um, volumes or what? Yeah, because that's what oh, FreeNAS does, called yeah. them before ZFS. Right. Yes, I see that. Yeah, because yeah. that's what they were called in in regular storage devices. Yeah. You know? uh, yep, yep. So the ZFS ones we call Z Vault. Anyway. Um, I'm still a little foggy on what his question actually is. All right. Well, so he's just curious about. So here's. So, here, sorry, does he have two different pools? Is that what he's asking? Yeah. Well, what he's asking is, uh, he says, no, "Am I correct in assuming that this layout is fine, or should I remake any of the volumes and move the data to another? Is there anything detrimental to leaving volumes like this?" He just kind of wants a sanity check. Uh, um, he only snaps as many data sets as you want, uh, or as many as you want to uh, have different policies about snapshots and so on. Uh, so what he has there looks fairly reasonable uh, for mine. Uh, my TV shows folder is broken down into genres just so that they're in smaller chunks. And you have that separated out at the ZFS level? Yeah. Okay. Uh, with the data sets. Uh, mostly because uh, where that came in was when I had my four-disc ZFS setup and I wanted yeah. to move to a six-disc ZFS setup, yeah. I had to split everything in my two my, in my pool into two separate groups mm. so I could uh, – basically what I did is I sent – two terabytes of data to one three-terabyte drive and the other two terabytes of data to another three-terabyte drive uh, and hold those temporarily while I rebuilt the array as a six-disc. And so by breaking them into groups, it made them easier to back them up separately. Uh, or I'll have different policies about, you know, when I snapshot it or which ones get replicated to remote backup and things like that. So, yeah, um, check out my ZFS book and you'll see what we talk about, you know, more data sets is better. Uh, but you have there looks fairly reasonable. So here's the second question. This machine has an AMD quad core. I think it's around 2.4 gigahertz and mm-hmm. 20 gigs of RAM uh, with right now about 9.9 terabytes of available storage. Mm-hmm. From what I've read, I should not turn on deduplication even of my personal volume, only having about 350 gigs of data in that because I didn't have enough RAM. That seems to be uh, every recommendation I keep running into. What is your personal experience? Will this box handle dedupe? And am I correct... Uh, I, do I need to move the data off and back on to use it now that all the volumes have it turned off? Thanks, guys. I learn something new every week. Naylor yeah, in the so, chat. Uh, if, when you turn on dedupe, uh, only data written after you turn it on will be deduped, so you would have to move everything off. Okay. And, so that is uh, a Or thing. what you would do is create an, uh, a second uh, data set or volume called personal new or something yeah. and turn on deduplication and then copy all the files over. And then they would get deduped, and then right. you could delete the old one. Right. But uh, yes, dedupe, you don't have enough RAM, and you really probably don't want to do that. Like, no matter how much stuff you have in that personal folder, your dedupe ratio is probably going to be tiny and save you only a tiny bit of space. And uh, if you look at that image, you can see compression is already saving you a lot in most of those cases. Uh, and so, compression is more likely going to give you everything you want. And compression always makes, especially with LZ4, compression makes your data read and write faster. Where deduplication makes your data read and writes, or well, makes it write a lot slower, and mm. even reads can be slower. Mm. Uh, you're much better off not using deduplication, using that RAM uh, as cache and making the files read and write faster instead. Uh, really? Deduplication almost is never worth it. Uh, yeah, like even if you have virtual machines that are, are all running Windows and have almost a lot of duplicate data, if the blocks don't line up exactly the same, they're not going to get deduped, and so mm. it's like. Okay. In in the ZFS book, okay. we have examples of how to do the test where you can say, all right, ZFS, take this data set and tell me how much days I would actually save from deduping it. Uh, and the answer is usually not very much, and the amount of RAM it's going to take <clears throat> is a lot. Like, it takes pr- approximately 400 bytes of RAM for every single block. And depending on your block size, that could be 4K, right? And 
you know, you're talking a lot of data broken down like that. That's huge amounts of RAM. All right. So, and the other thing is that um, the the amount of RAM used for dedupe is metadata, right? And so, metadata by default is limited to twenty five percent of your RAM. So, mm. even if if mm. it was only going to take mm. you know eight gigs of your twenty gigs of RAM, mm-hmm. well, you are only only five, yeah, only five gigs of your RAM is available for dedupe anyway because it's of the the metadata limit. So, it seems- and so even twenty gigs of RAM, even if even in a best case scenario. That's not going to be enough RAM. So and it seems pretty solidly. Even even on my machines, I have 128 gigs of RAM. Really? I still don't use DDU. There you go. There you go. All right. Our last ZFS but the, question. The book talks about uh, at zfsbook.com uh, talks about what you need uh, to look at if you really want to do it. But most likely, you're going to end up hating yourself. So don't. <laughs> All right. So there you go, Neil. Don't hate yourself, bro. All right. Brian writes in with our last ZFS question for the day. It's a huge, long email. Mm-hmm. But here's this question. Uh, he's setting up a machine, uh, storage for a, for a, a, a Dell NAS. And uh, I know. Uh, yeah, you have this one pulled up because this is a long one. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, we have another machine with 73 gigabyte, 15,000 RPM SAS drive, 30 gigabytes of RAM, and 6 gigabyte NICs, two onboard and two NICs that are uh, PCI cards yeah, themselves. So to summarize, this guy has uh, an old Dell NAS. Mm-hmm. That has about three terabytes of space yeah. and lots of NICs. Uh, but and he wants to do a little I because it's a NAS. I don't think he actually has control of the operating system on it. Okay, I'm not entirely sure. Okay, but um, he says that the geeks in my coworker are wondering if we could integrate that uh, in a large cache box for NAS by using ZFS. We'd mount the iSCSI NAS storage as a third way has a three way multi path and use the other three NICs as iSCSI targets. So perhaps yeah, they so basically what he's saying is so we have this NAS, but it doesn't have very much RAM, and we have this other machine that has a lot of RAM but no disks. Right. Uh, would it make sense to use iSCSI yep. to pull the disks from the NAS into this machine with a lot of RAM? Mm-hmm. Or would the delay caused by the iSCSI make it worse? Right. And he says he's got about 32 gigabytes of RAM. He says that might be maybe too small, but we could stripe the hard drives into a 140 gigabyte L2 ARC. Yeah. Uh, now, the L2 ARC, uh, like he mentions in here, when you use L2 ARC, some RAM gets used up. Because yeah. basically, you have to put a marker in RAM saying, this block is over in the L2 ARC. Uh, and so, at some point, you're, the trade-off is... If you're actually going to fill 140 gigs of your L2 arc with uh, files, and all the pointers are now going to take up so much of your RAM that you have no RAM left for uh, L1 arc, and the L1 arc is a lot faster than mm-hmm. the L2 arc, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's the trade-off worth it. Then he mentions about the uh, doing one of those the write cache, the ZIL. Uh, your ZIL, I would say, n- never needs to be more than 16 gigabytes. Uh, it's really the ZIL is limited to how much data you could possibly generate in in five or ten seconds. And so, yeah, 140 gig Zill would just be a giant waste. <laughs> uh, and so I don't really know the answer. It really depends on your workload. Uh, like he mentions, uh, he can try it out. So, yeah, you might want to try it out with uh, doing the iSCSI and using 32 gigs of RAM and, and possibly using the uh, – Is it, I don't know about using uh, a pair of 73 gig, uh, what are they, 10,000 RPM drives. Mm-hmm. Instead of SSDs for L2ARC, I don't know if they're going to be no, that I'm sorry, much faster. No, I'm sorry, they're uh, 15,000, but still. Oh, even 15,000. Yeah. It's still not the same thing as an SSD. <laughs> yeah. um, although, if they're that much faster than what the NAS is going to give you, that might work. Uh, sounds like fun to try, but if, if, you, <laughs> if, if you want to set this up uh, permanently without spending a lot of time on it, I would just go directly. Uh, yeah. The, you know, yeah. honestly, what I would... Honestly, what I would say to do is pull the hard drives out of that Dell piece of crap and put them in the thing with 32 gigs of RAM. But Chassis probably doesn't have room for them, and that's why he's doing all this other stuff. Yeah, I know, but that does seem like like I don't know how we could attach it, maybe externally or something. But that does seem. Yeah, like- but externally, I wouldn't want to do either. So I, I understand. Yeah, uh, 
most likely you could just run off the NAS, especially uh, the ideal solution, honestly, is if you could pull the RAM out of that one machine and stick it in the NAS. But uh, it'd be interesting to see that iSCSI thing. Uh, that might actually work. Yeah. Hard to say. Yeah, let us know. Uh, definitely for writes, there's going to be a slightly longer delay, but for, especially for asynchronous stuff, ZFS batches it up and then writes it out once every five seconds. It'll be okay over iSCSI. It should be fine. All right, Al. Now, our last feedback this week isn't actually an email. It is a physical uh, mail item that we mm-hmm. got here. It is a gift from uh, Mr. Uh, production staff, uh, Mr. Q5Sys and the production staff. And I am told, I have no idea other than I'm told two things. It's something we don't have in the studio. And it's something that perhaps if I was a sysadmin in Texas, I would be kicked out of Texas if I didn't have this potentially. Ah. And you do appreciate and, the bow? Yes, the bow is actually made out of uh, an Ethernet cable with the yeah. uh, Velcro strap <laughs> thingies. So you've even got the Velcro strap for uh, the, the cable organizer. Okay, so I'll go ahead and I'm going to pull this off. I have no idea what's in here. Although, you think it's candy? Nope. You don't, I think, I'm hoping candy because I could use some candy right now. Nope. Think about that, we'd have a very hyper roundup. Mm. That'd be good. You've I'm, already been drinking, so. <laughs> it's Diet Coke, Alan. It's, it's, yeah, how much bourbon was in the Diet Coke? I'm sorry, what? <laughs> And that that is a rumor, sir. That is a false rumor. I watch you pour it in. I Canadians, ladies and gentlemen, Canadians, you can't yeah. trust them. All right, maybe it's a PS4 game. You think it's a no? Okay. All right, well. The Texas comment made me think multi-tool, but okay. All right, yeah. All right, and it is, ladies and gentlemen. Ooh, that 34-piece precision screwdriver, the okay. Pittsburgh Pro. And now the green might be cut out here, Alan, but you hold it up there. There you go. Oh yeah, nice, perfect. Ooh, that is very fancy. Yeah, we, you know, it's funny. I know they've probably needed that a hundred times. No wonder they've wanted me to open it. <laughs> they've wanted me to open this on every show this week, and yeah. I've been well, waiting for they, this they've episode. They've been trying to tear apart a machine outside yeah. and having a lot of trouble with it. <laughs> and look at this little uh, thing for doing screwdriver around a corner. Wow. That seems like that might have helped uh, earlier. Now I understand why they've been asking me to unbox that every episode. I said, no, I want to wait for TechSnap. To prevent like, serious injury yeah. and property damage, yeah. be sure to wear ANSI-approved safety goggles and heavy-duty work gloves during use. Q5, producer Q5Sys was like, do not use this as a hammer. He's like, they wrote studio on there. That's cute. <laughs> producer Q5Sys was like, don't you want to open this on Tech Talk? And I'm like, why would I open a gift on an audio show? And then, and then the next day he's like, don't you want to open that on Tech Talk? And I'm like, again, I'm like, why would I want to open that on an audio show? And then on Linux Unplugged, he's like, don't you want to open that gift? And I'm like, dude. Linux Unplugged is an audio show. I should wait for a video show text. And then I realized it's because they probably needed this all week long. And they, <laughs> they didn't want to say anything. <laughs> At some point, I kind of expect them to dis- disappear off the table. They'd unwrap it, use it, and right, wrap it again. Right, I know, right? Because they've been extremely desperate, you think so. But there you go. Well, oh, thank you, got a magnifying glass. We That's do awesome. need this in the studio, which is mm-hmm. kind of ridiculous. Don't let Angela steal this. It says studio on it. It's very clearly labeled. I know. I think that's why he labeled it. Yep. Because she tries to take the non-studio stuff. And he, oh, this is mine, she says. Well, anyway, that's a, <laughs> that's a story for a faux show. Yep. All right. Well, we'd love to get your feedback. Please go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click that contact link, or check out our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com and submit it over there. Or email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But Alan, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup of Stories just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still like to give you some links to follow up on your own. And a lot of these links came from a brand new subreddit that I just launched between the break. You've never heard of it before. It's called techsnap.reddit.com. It's the new hotness. Why don't you be one of the first members to sign up? Go to techsnap.reddit.com to make this show better. And 
a lot of these links were powered by that brand new subreddit. And Alan, our first story from techsnob.reddit.com, for God's sakes, is uh, <laughs> evil Wi-Fi kills iPhones. We actually talked about uh, this story last week, but it didn't have a cool name. Yeah. So when we talked about it last week, it was like, oh, here's a list of other patches uh, for iOS that went into the recent security uh, fix. Well, it turns out one of them was called evil Wi-Fi. And uh, it's the one, remember, we said uh, uh, certainly uh, specially crafted TCP IP packets with an incorrect one of the headers or something would blue screen iOS. Well, it turns out you can use it on iPhones and iPads, too. So you can go walk around on the Wi-Fi broadcasting this packet and (laughs) cause all the phones to just die. Oh, no. Well... So I'm sure Apple have a fix. Yeah, so this is a denial of service triggered by uh, manipulating... Oh, this one's slightly different. Uh, denial of service triggered by manipulating SSL certs sent to the iOS device over Wi-Fi. Uh, specially crafted data will cause the apps or possibly the operating system to just crash. Hmm. Womp womp. <laughs> That's not so good. Not yeah. so good at all. All right, next story in the roundup. Moving right along. Net yes. Nowney. Yes. So Net Nowney is one of those... Uh, software you buy to block your kids from going to things yeah. they're not supposed to. Parents are worried about. Yeah. I remember when NetNanny started in like the 90s. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, basically, they were found to use the same man-in-the-middle fake root CA technique that we saw from Superfish and the like. Yeah, this stuff I bet is going to keep rolling yep. out. Uh, you know, uh, and when you hear about NetNanny doing it, you're like, yeah, I could have predicted that. That's that's exactly how they would do that. I didn't see this next story coming, although I guess that's the way things are going this day. But Netflix will be switching its streaming over to HTTPS. Yes. Uh, if you want more details on this, on uh, BSD Now, we talked. We have the actual academic paper, the PDF, uh, that describes how they did it. Uh, but basically, um, on FreeBSD, which is what Netflix uses to stream all the videos, <laughs> uh, there's a system call called SendFile, which – so normally – when you talk to a web server, what the web server would do is you would ask for a file, it would go to the file, read the file into its memory, and then say, all right, write this data out to the socket, and the kernel would send it over the network. Right. Uh, then they came up with a send file system where basically when you asked for the file from the web server, the web server okay, hey, kernel, uh, take that file and send it to the socket, and the web server would get out of the way and let the kernel do all the work. However, you couldn't do that anymore when you wanted to do encryption because the encryption would happen in the web server. So the web server would have to read the file, encrypt okay, it, and right. then send the encrypted data to yes, the socket. yes. And so that couldn't ever be as fast. Yeah, CPU were uh, huge. Yeah. Well, and, and it was just the, the amount of context switching between the different tasks and, right. and so on. Right. All of it is very slow. Yeah. Uh, so uh, John Mark Gurney and some people from Netflix uh, worked together and built a, a system where you can actually do the TLS bulk encryption in the kernel. <sighs> so you can literally say, hey, uh, you, uh, Net, uh, Nginx makes the call, says, hey, send this file, but encrypt it. Did you see this, this presentation? Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't see this presentation, but I've read the paper. Uh, and uh, hopefully there'll be video of it from Asia uh, BSD. BSDCon on YouTube soon. And if not, I think the talk will be also be given at BSDCon, right. and hopefully that'll be live streamed. And the paper you're referencing is also linked in this Ars Technica article. Yes. Uh, and so it's all there. But basically, uh, Nginx says, hey, send this file, uh, but encrypt it with this SSL key. And... Uh, the kernel does all the work. That's and, incredible, uh, Alan. They, they've managed with commodity, like regular uh, medium-end uh, Xeon processors uh, to push 40 gigabits per second of uh, encrypted traffic out of each machine. Yeah. And a couple of years ago... It of was, encrypted traffic. Yeah. A couple of years ago, it was a big deal for them to be able to send 10 out of, the, out of one CPU machine or out of uh, a dual CPU machine. Jeez, you tell me 40 gigabit of unencrypted traffic and I'm impressed. Yeah, that, that was the milestone uh, like a year, uh, six months ago or more. Yeah. And then that's when they started on this work. And as you can see here, uh, the file doesn't ever actually go through Nginx. Nginx just makes the call and says, hey, read this file and uh, 
encrypted with this SSL key, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the magic happens, yeah. and the files go up, and it's uh, super fast. Look at, and of course, it'd and be Netflix uh, to push this, yes. right? And there's uh, extra work still to be done that will make it even faster and even stronger. It would be them that needs this. Mm-hmm. All right, Alan, a World of Tanks grand finales behind the scenes. Now, why? Yeah, that, why so this, this? is uh, they're basically having a giant esports tournament, right? It's a comp- competition for a video game. Okay. But the article covers. Uh, the IT setup stuff they had to do to make it work, oh, including yes. uh, there's going to be like 12,000 attendees at the event. They have like 120 computers or something like that. A set massive up. live stream. Yeah. They have like 50 different people that are going to be on the live stream. 4.3 million viewers. Yeah. On the last one. Yeah. On the previous one. Uh, so they have 28 on- on-air broadcasters plus about 50 additional TV staff. They Look at this. Up. 170 computers, 1.13 gigabits of bandwidth, and 16 cameras. Yeah. That makes Linux Fest look easy compared to that. Plus, the 16 cameras, like regular, full-on. And then there's 14 player cameras, which basically where they're pulling the screen from right. the player while they're playing. Right. And it basically goes into the whole IT setup they did Gosh, for – that's awesome. Uh, you know, and I've, I've heard about some of these for like LAN parties and, and conferences before. But this one's doing that's like video awesome. production of a, a video game tournament. Super and cool. I just thought that was pretty cool to see you know, what kind of setup goes into uh, doing an event like this. And you know, that's kind of easy compared to what we're going to have to try to do for Linux Fest. Right? And that one, we have lots of time and we're going to bring all this gear in and set it up. And then the people are going to come in and, and, and stand where we want them to. Mm-hmm. Whereas at Linux Fest, it's like we're going to go and we're going to try to bootstrap out of nothing a whole yeah. video production yeah. thing. From nothing to <laughs> out, of, out of the trunk of a car. <laughs> yes. Yes, and old busted Hackintosh parts that we're yeah. converting to a Linux rig. Yeah. Uh, so it wouldn't be a TechSnap episode without, le- without maybe an occasional Android security issue from time to time? Yep. Uh, so this one is from nes.fr, which is a security place. Uh, if you scroll down far enough on the article, they have English because <laughs> some of the stuff at the top is in French. Uh, but it's a new Android exploit called TouchJacking. Uh, which allows them to like silently install malware on your phones. All right, so we're watching a video right now, and they have uh, uh, an old uh, Android Nexus device here. They go on in Google Chrome up to a website, and I noticed they have a Windows rig here. Uh, they're, so they're in Google Play Store, and they're yes. installing an app. Yeah, and uh, the NACS, the N- and it didn't ask for any special permissions. Right, but in the background, it it's actually like, getting full root permission, and it just looks like an innocent app in the Play Store. Yeah. Um, and so about one megabyte with no special privileges. It's got screenshots uh, and all of that kind of stuff. And so now they open up the app and uh, looks like he gets an invitation. He clicks on the invitation, confirms the invitation. And now if you look over on the uh, console where he appears to have a putty window open to a Linux box with a, a Python script running server.py, you see the botnet server starts and the Android machine now connects to the botnet server. The application on the Android device closes and now he is controlling the Android device from the Python script on the Linux box. Mm-hmm. And there's no indication on the Android device. Now when he picks up and starts reading a text message, he starts typing a text message, he goes back and he's reading his SMS messages. Now over on the computer with the Python script. That looks like a bunch of the text from his messages yep. and stuff. Yep, and he's pulling up the contacts too right there. That's him pulling in the contacts. Look at that. Yep, and he can actually read the contacts off to the remote phone. Yeah. Yeah, and, and he's just got the location. He's got yep, the longitude and latitude. Uh, reading the GPS on the phone from his computer. And he, just pop, and he pops that into Google Maps, of course, and uh, just pulls it right up on, uh, yeah. on Google Maps. And uh, this is an app that was just right out of the Play Store. That it didn't ask for permission to access GPS or to send data over the network. It was just saying, nope, this is an app that doesn't require any special privileges at all. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. well. That is a bit of, that is a bit of a uh, scary uh, concept, yep. but uh, 
Yeah, and it says it can lead to compromise of any Android device, mm-hmm. even the most current. With uh, They tried on the Nexus 5 with the uh, current revisions of Android. So we'll have a link to more information about that in you the show notes. Okay, Alan, re-hacking uh, Facebook accounts with the Reconnect tool. Hey, there you go, yeah, everybody. It's like Facebook Connect, but it's called Reconnect. Okay. And uh, I guess, what, it must use like the Facebook login system? Yeah, to- and it uh, exploits a flaw in the cross-site for, uh, request forgery protections, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. boom, Perfect. hijack Facebook Perfect. Accounts. Perfect. I loved this next story. I'm glad you caught this one. FBI and, TSA, and the TSA warn airlines to watch out for Wi-Fi hacks. It's just going on and on now. And this yes. Uh, in particular, scary. you know, as we talked about last week. Last week? No, two uh, weeks ago. No. Uh, what we actually said earlier today, which was last week. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, uh, you know, they're talking. And what we said two weeks ago as well. Uh, you know, uh, the... GAO issued this report warning about the chance of people hacking wi- planes avionics from the in-flight Wi-Fi or the in-flight entertainment system. Yeah. And uh, from our sources, who are actual pilots that fly actual airplanes and not people that write reports for the government, uh, the avionics are not connected to At the all. in-flight Wi-Fi. Not even wired that together. would be stupid. That would be really no dumb. that stupid. And, and really obvious. Yes. And really even dumb and obvious people that don't know anything about computers know not to wire a critical flight management system to a public Wi-Fi network. Yeah, and uh, specifically the the warning the FBI and TSA are sending to airlines says, report any suspicious activity involving travelers connecting unknown cables or wires to the in-flight entertainment system or unusual parts of the airplane seat. I don't know. I've looked around my airplane you seat. Have I didn't see any random Ethernet ports I don't have any Ethernet under my, my seat no. or something. No, I've never had Ethernet. Do you know what's under my seat? The feet of the person yeah. behind me yeah. or their luggage. Yeah. There's there's no Ethernet ports no, in there. No, and 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 if if there were Ethernet ports yeah. and they connected to some part of the yeah. plane that I wasn't allowed to connect to, yeah. why are they under my seat? I celebrate. I celebrate when I get a headphone jack. Let alone an Ethernet port. An Ethernet port? I would literally be blown away by an Ethernet port. I would be yes, blown away by an Ethernet port. What I was concerned by was uh, the in-flight entertainment system has a USB port for yeah. charging your phone and stuff. Yeah, yeah. When I plug my Kindle into it, my Kindle asked me to please eject the device from the in-flight entertainment system before it'll charge. Like, so it is so when not, I, there's a data connection there. Something. Because, yeah, when you plug your Kindle in, it tries to sync with the That's, computer first, and it says eject if you just want to charge because it won't charge. So I couldn't charge my Kindle because it was trying to interface with the computer which I'm guessing was probably running Windows or something. Lame. Uh, although I couldn't actually, and yeah, so I couldn't actually, I need like a... Why would they even have the data But I need one of those USB phone condom things that gives yeah. me only the, power, only the power, just so that I could charge my bloody Kindle. Yeah, My cell phone charge is fine. It doesn't try to connect to it, so I don't know. All right, Alan. Our next story... Oh, uh, and the, sorry, the other things they had were, report any evidence of suspicious behavior following a flight, such as the in-flight entertainment system that shows evidence of tampering or being f- uh, the force... Forceful removal of the covers for any of the network connection ports. So I guess if you actually like pry the back of the seat off where the TV is, you might find the network connection the TV uses, which goes to a NAS that's full of movies for you to watch and probably doesn't control the airplane. What are you no, no, I make sure I put my Plex and flight management software on the same yeah. rig. Yeah. Also, report any evidence of suspicious behavior involving aviation wireless signals, including social media messages <laughs> oh, with threatening references to onboard network systems like ADS-B and ACARS and aircraft uh, air traffic control networks. So the airline should be watching everything on Twitter to see if anybody says anything about some acronyms. Because, you know... Because that means they hacked it. Nothing says feed the trolls like actually paying government employees to watch them. Well, in particular, this is the government asking the private employees of airlines to do this because mm. the government can't be bothered. 
Also, review the network logs from aircraft to ensure that any suspicious activity, such as network scanning or intrusion attempts, is captured for further analysis. <laughs> so, how can you tell mm-hmm. uh, uh, which when the, if someone does an NMAP, someone somehow connects to the in-flight entertainment system, I guess with in-flight Wi-Fi, yeah. and does some N-mapping, yeah. how do you tell which seat they were in again? Oh, you can't. And so what... How about just don't put anything on the network you don't want people to see? And then, oh, problem solved. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, we already did that. Oh. So it's really not a problem at all. Yeah. Are you ready for the next round of story, sir? Yep. Uh, this blog post has been getting some attention uh, for a little while now. I quit what really goes on at Apple about a listed employee that uh, had left Apple. Yeah. And, Although he uh, wasn't his... actually a developer. No? Wasn't no. He was a support person. Oh, okay. Anyway, the title of his ear is Why Steve Jobs Motivated Me to Quit Apple. Yeah, I do like that. Uh, so I read through this because we broke it down on Coda Radio. Okay. I, 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 this I, – I wanted to get more out of it than what I took away. What I essentially took away is this guy worked out of the Australian uh, uh, call center mm-hmm. and they did a merger between two different call centers and he had a culture conflict and he got all pissy and he left and he quotes Steve Jobs for the reason. But uh, what I take away – I should have actually read this before putting it in the roundup because <laughs> that's nothing I care about. <laughs> I, I know. I know. <laughs> Sorry. Well, no, no, no. It's actually not that bad in a sense because it gives you uh, a little bit in a way if you think about it, the, and a, a behind-the-scenes perspective of what it's like to be a support person at Apple, which kind of matters for our audience because these are the people we rely on when we buy Apple products and have to support them. So I actually think it's not a bad reference. It's mm-hmm. a little bit long, so I would just say go check it out in the show notes if you guys want to read it. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, it does kind of – it is a little bit of a call to action in a sense and a little condemning. And it gives you a little insight to Apple, well, Apple corporate know, culture. I, I, I wouldn't want to have to work in a call center and I feel sorry for people to have to. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Because I, I don't do. think most people would choose to. Anyway. You know, I've heard uh, from a couple of different folks that say by live streaming, they become better developers. Thinking different by live streaming your coding sessions. Even um, uh, 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 Notch does yeah. this. Okay. Uh, well, so specifically the, the basic concept behind it is if you're live streaming your code while you're writing it, uh, specifically, it's not just letting people see you typing. That's not the point. The point is, if you're stopping to explain what you're doing to the to the live stream while you're doing it, you stop to actually think about it a little more than you would, right? And just by explaining it out loud, like oftentimes, this is the the best part about like a dev summit or a, mm. a hackathon is if you're working with someone on some code and you stop and you explain what your the problem is to them, even just the act of you explaining what the problem was might give you the idea. Just thinking yeah. about it that way gives you yeah. the idea of how to solve it. Yeah. And if not, they might have the idea. That's why my wife takes credit for like for like 70% of the major breakthrough technical solutions because she'll try to help me with them. And as I'm explaining them to her, I come, come up, up with, with the, the breakthrough. Yep. And she's like, you're welcome. And yeah. I'm like, but okay. All right. You're right. You were here when yeah. it happened. <laughs> and yeah. And so by live streaming your coding sessions and actually narrating what you're doing, you're thinking about it more. And, and I think that can lead to more secure code because you're actually thinking about it. And yeah. And explaining why you chose to do things a certain way and makes you actually think about it a little more than you would if you were just writing the code as fast as you could kind of thing. I like it. Uh, Let's check it out. Yeah. I don't know. ITWorld.com has the story linked I, in the show notes. I might do that someday. Joshua Corman tweets the vicious circle of DevOps and he has a picture of this it. This is virtuous as in oh, the, the good virtuous. side. Oh. The opposite of that. You know what? I was so biased that I was yeah. just glance reading it. I, wrote vicious, I read yeah. vicious. <laughs> uh, so this is, this is how you're supposed to do uh, DevOps. Uh, with security. So step one is you publish version configs to your source code management system. This is how we do it at scale engine. Sure. Right? Rather than just having configs floating sure. around or whatever, we have each config has a version number, which is basically based on the date. 
uh, and some an increment counter so that when we make multiple changes in a day, which happens especially when you're making changes, sometimes there'll be a week with no changes and, and then a day with 20 changes. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so you have that, and it goes into source code manager so that it's easy to roll back to the previous one and to tell what you can do diffs and see what changed. And you use the blame command to say who added this line to the config and things like that. Then, two, you have a central master server with all the gold configs. For sure. us, that's our puppet master. Right. And then you have uh, auto config propagation and enforcement on all the endpoints. Okay. That's the puppet clients. They yep. pull the gold config and they apply it to their system and they make sure that if the system is out of exactly what that configuration is, they will change the machine to be into that configuration. Then you have monitoring and alerting with centralized logging. That's Nagios, Nagios. and centralized logging, like yep. uh, Logstash log. or uh, lots of other stuff, or remote <laughs> syslog, all that kind of stuff. And then the last one is uh, event-driven event self-healing from, from configs. configs. So that's the part that we don't quite have yet, but that's, uh, you know, when something breaks, you figure out what the problem was and... and or more importantly, your monitoring system can figure out what the problem is. And well, I guess we do kind of have that. So what we have at Scale Engine for that is our load balancer, which is monitoring all of our servers. And as soon as a server is not, uh, it's over capacity or it's not working or whatever, uh, it changes its DNS config to remove oh. that server from the pool that is and starts redirecting the traffic. So you're so what you're saying, Alan Jude, is you do DevOps. DevOps sec. <laughs> Yes, because okay. I, I write code, I right. do operations, and I have to do the security. DevOps. I have to do everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a full-stack DevOps sec operator. No. Yeah, DevOps know. sec, full-stack DevOps sec uh, fashionista. Right. You know, Alan, everybody tries to have the hell, the best, everybody, that, like, yep. damn straight, this is the best API, no question about it. But before you go out there and make the world's best API, you first have to have at least 10 security considerations according to this blog post. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, Gunter, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gunter Peterson, I think, yes. or Pedersen. I'm not yeah. sure. Uh, so number one is obviously you need to implement a model approach controller architecture so that you can control what people sure. have access to. Mm-hmm. and. You know, make sure there's no loopholes where somebody can get access to information they're not supposed to and so on. Uh, then you have to know and contain your assets. What are the parts you don't want uh, people getting access to, right? Then the biggest one is design for malice. Assume your users are going to try to access information they're not supposed to. <laughs> Assume they're going to try to put in data that will break things. Yeah. Uh, Assume that they're going to try to send too many files per second or too much data or all the different things, right? Or use BitTorrent. Or yeah. when you're trying to watch a movie remotely, have Steam running updating all the things. Yeah. Uh, monitor for flaws and look for you know API tags as they're happening, right? You want to make sure your API is working, but you got to make sure that somebody's not doing a thousand requests a second to it. Uh, we find this on our scale engines API sometimes users uh, not caching stuff or uh, the biggest one was the one uh, they implemented our viewer counting system where it shows mm-hmm. how many viewers are on. Yeah, except for each viewer was doing the AJAX call directly. So basically, if they had a thousand people on the website, they were getting. Once every like thirty seconds, all thousand people were trying to call the API <laughs> instead of them just caching it for five minutes at a time or something. <laughs> then you have to think about mobile and beyond. This is the one that's caught out. We've talked about a lot of these, like the PayPal mobile app and a mm-hmm. bunch of other mobile apps, mm-hmm. where for the mobile app to work, they basically made backdoors in the API, and then somebody else figures out that backdoor yeah. and can access the information because they bolted it on later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you have to think about how you're going to do mobile ahead of time, right? Also, think of sessions, not just the API. Right, especially when you have like a RESTful API or something where there's going to be some kind of persistence, you have to think how that's going to work. Yeah, yeah, especially and, if they have and multiple APIs devices. are usually built on a, a midstream session, right? But how are you going to do this in a mobile app versus something else? Yeah, and how are you going to have API gateways and how is it going to talk to the back end and so on? And simplify the user experience. 
uh, you know, you don't want to ask people if they trust the certificate and a bunch of silly things like that. Mm-hmm. And you also need to simplify the developer experience. The whole point of an API is somebody's going to write some code that uses this API. You need to make that easy. Otherwise, they're going to do it wrong. Uh, Stripe has the best developer-focused yeah. API yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, then you have to appoint an API curator. That's the other thing Stripe does is they version their API by date. And so when you sign up, you get whatever the latest API is, and they guarantee that API is going to stay there. Uh, Scale Engine still using the 2013 API, uh, <clears throat> mostly because we just never tested the newer one. Uh, but every time they have a newer one, they don't bump us to it. They leave us on a one that's working, and then we just go in and update to the newer one when we want the newer features. Mm-hmm. And then it's our job to make sure that everything's going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but having an API curator so that you can make sure that everything's happening how it's supposed to happen. And then finally, be uh, bi-di- uh, bi-directional, right? Have notifications, web sockets, and yeah. stuff like that. So especially, uh, you know, when I was working on, starting to work on the API for some other stuff, it's like, all right, you're asking for an operation that's going to take five minutes to do. Uh, I don't want to hold this socket open for five minutes. How about uh, mm. you, uh, you ask the request, and as part of the request, you give me a URL. And when this is done, I'll call the URL and say, hey, we're done. Uh, especially uh, at scaling, we're looking at doing uh, uh, transcoding and encoding a video for people. Ooh. And uh, Ooh. so for that one, it's going to be here, please transcode this yeah. file, and here's the profiles I want. And I need to know when it's And then at the end, we're going to call you back and say, all right, this, this yeah. version's done. Yeah. And then this version's done. And then this version's done. Yeah. And that's going to take however yeah, and long. And some of those could take like 20 minutes. That's going to take, it's going to be different for depending on the length of the exactly. source material. So we, so we want to notify you hmm. differently about each one because, you know, the lower bit rate will probably be done first or whatever. That's really cool, Alan. Yeah. And the WebM will be done very, very last. Yeah. Very, very, yeah. very, very last. Yeah. By a long distance, by, by, by four times as long. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is the roundup. If you'd like to submit stories for the roundup, please go over to techsnap.reddit.com. Submit them there. Your votes, your comments, all of that stuff is super appreciated. And that does bring us to the end of this week's broadcast. Join us next week. We'll be live over at jblive.tv. Go over there. We start live at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom. And jblive.info for the audio-only version like a mouse. If you're on the go or maybe you're at work and they don't want you using video, I don't judge. That's why I make 128 kilobit and like a 64, it's actually technically like 63 kilobit version of the stream available for you. I do that for you because you're my boo. Also, don't forget we have RSS feeds available of this show, so that way you can get the show every single week when we come out. Torrent feeds, if you'd like to help to defer the bandwidth costs. And if you want to help other people find the TechSnap program, that way they get all the goodness, we could really use a review in iTunes. Ah, I know. I know. I know. But not a lot of you use iTunes, so if you have iTunes installed in your computer or have access to a computer with iTunes, we'd appreciate the review. That way other people can find our show. Mr. Jute? Is there anything else we need to cover before we get out of here? Uh, No, I think that's about it. All right. Well, that'll wrap us up for this week's episode of the TechSnap program. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.